You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. As you just heard in Pastor Odom's prayer for us this morning, we are beginning our journey together starting today through the Gospel of Luke. We've entitled this new series, From the Manger to the Throne. And as we begin this series through the Gospel of Luke, I I thought, It would be appropriate to begin our time together this morning and our study of this gospel by reading to you the following words from J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle was was the bishop of Liverpool in England in the late 1800s and wrote extensively on the gospels. And this is what he says about why we need to study the gospels. I quote, it would be well if professing Christians in modern days studied the four Gospels more than they do. No doubt, all Scripture is profitable. It's not wise to exalt one part of the Bible at the expense of another. But I think it would be good for some who are familiar with the epistles, the letters, if they knew a little, a little bit more about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, why do I say this? I say it because I want professing Christians to know more about Christ. It is well to be acquainted with all the doctrines and principles of Christianity. It is better to be acquainted with Christ himself. It is well to be familiar with faith and grace and justification and sanctification. They are all matters pertaining to the king. But it is far better to be familiar with Jesus himself, to see the king's own face and to behold his beauty. Ought not the sheep to be familiar with the shepherd? Ought not the patient to be familiar with the physician? Ought not the bride... To be familiar with the bridegroom? Ought not the sinner to be familiar with the Savior? Beyond doubt, it ought to be so. The Gospels were written to make men and women familiar with Christ. And therefore, I wish men to study the Gospels. On whom must we build our souls if we would be accepted by God? We must build on the rock, Christ. For whom must we draw the grace of the Spirit, which we daily need in order to be fruitful? We must draw from the vine, Christ. To whom must we look for sympathy and earth, when earthly friends fail us or die? We must look to our elder brother, Christ. By whom must our prayers be presented if they are to be heard on high? They must be presented by our advocate, Christ. 
With whom do we hope to spend the thousands of years of glory and the after eternity? With the King of Kings, Christ. He says, surely we cannot know this Christ too well. Surely there is not a word, nor a deed, nor a day, nor a step, nor a thought in the record of his life which ought not be precious to us. We should labor to be familiar with every line that is written about Jesus. Friends, even though we will not be able to focus on every line that was written about Jesus in the four Gospels, we can and we must pay careful attention to the portrait of Jesus that's on display in the Gospel of Luke. And this morning, we have the privilege of looking at the first four verses together. So if you're in Luke's Gospel, we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And Luke, who was the author of this gospel, he, he began his account, his gospel account of the life of Jesus. He did so in a way that was similar to many other writers in the Greco-Roman world. So what, the way that Luke begins was a common feature among people writing such a big and important work. He begins with a preface. That's what verses 1 through 4 are. They are the preface to this gospel. Now, if you are not familiar with what a preface is, a preface in a book are the introductory comments in which the author makes to the reader. So before the author begins telling us about whatever they have sought to write in this book, they speak directly to the reader. And usually they're explaining why they wrote the book, and the manner in which they obtain the information about this subject to which they're writing, and why they chose to write in the way that they did on this topic. For example, if you pick off a, a brand new book that was just written this year on Winston Churchill, I can almost guarantee you're going to find a preface, because your question is going to be, why do we need another book on Winston Churchill? And so it's going to be that author, before he tells you anything about it, Winston Churchill, to tell you, here's why I wrote this book. There have been many books written on Winston Churchill, but there are things you don't know about him. And I read some of his personal letters that very few people have plugged into, and, here, and here's how, well, here's what I've discovered, and here's what I want to convince you of. That's what a preface is. And in this preface, Luke does not write, uh, waste a single word. In this, in this preface, Luke carefully crafts his explanation for why he wrote this gospel account. So let us now look at and read this preface, even though it was written by Luke. Church, this is God's holy, divinely inspired an authoritative word. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, 
It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The preface we just read in verses 1 through 4, if you Pay careful attention to it. It consists of one long sentence. <laughs> this is one long sentence that really can be divided into two halves. So here's our outline this morning. If we were to divide this preface into halves, this is what we would see. The history behind the story, verses 1 through 2, and the story that changed history, verses 3 through 4. That's what Luke's doing here. He tells us the history behind the story, and then in this same sentence, he switches around and tells us the story that changed history. Let's begin by looking at the first half of this preface, verses 1 through 2, and the history behind the story. The Gospel of Luke, like the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, the Gospel of Luke is a story. It's actually written in narrative form. The Bible consists of a number of different genres. We, we've, we encounter narrative in the Old Testament. There is poetry. There is prophetic literature. We come to the New Testament. And the vast majority of the New Testament are epistles, letters. And then the Bible ends with the genre of apocalyptic literature. Well, the Gospel of Luke, along with the other Gospels, our narrative. Now listen, by referring to the gospel of Luke as a story, I'm in no way implying that any of the content is fictitious or that it's merely Luke's interpretation. That, that is not what I mean by a story. This is not the product of make-believe. This is not Luke's thoughts on who Jesus was quite the opposite. By calling this a story, I mean to communicate how, how Luke shares the details about the person and work of Jesus, both in a coherent and compelling, uh, in a com coherent and compelling aim with, with one reason that he wrote all this down. See, Luke isn't just telling us facts. He isn't just giving us a bunch of details. He writes in a coherent way and in a compelling manner for one reason. To convince us that everything we have heard about Jesus is true. And the first thing Luke informs the reader of as we look at this preface is the backstory to him writing this gospel. See, way before Luke sat down and began to pen the words to these gospel, there is a backstory that Luke thinks we need to understand. It's important that we know about. So look at verses 1 through 2 again. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning where eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. You see what Luke tells us in the first two 
verses, in the first half of this preface, we are informed that there is a historical background behind this story about Jesus. According to the first two verses, Luke was not the first person nor the only person to pass on stories about Jesus, nor was he the first person nor the only person to write down these truths about Jesus. Quite the contrary. Who Jesus was and what Jesus had done caused quite a stir in the ancient world, as you can imagine. I mean, if, if, if what Scripture says is true, and we believe that it's to be true, then can you imagine the impact that Jesus had on the known world? How, how much His stories must have grabbed the attention of people. People were fascinated with Jesus and interested in telling others about Him, including the many who were eyewitnesses of Jesus and His ministry. Can you imagine being one of those eyewitnesses and going to a family dinner? Let's say you were there when Jesus fed the 5,000. Everybody's now settled around the table eating dinner. And the topic comes up. So we heard that you were there when Jesus broke the bread, took the little bit of fish, and all of a sudden the multitudes were fed. And now you have the opportunity to say, oh, I don't even have words. I, I still can't believe it myself. Yeah, here's what happened. Here's what I saw. Here's what occurred. Can you imagine the many, many stories being passed on by the countless people who encountered Jesus outside of his disciples, who were there for everything? See, many eyewitnesses shared their stories about Jesus orally, and then we're told here that some even wrote down their stories to be read by others. Whether it was just a brief encounter, it was a longer section of a number of things they saw, or they were like other disciples who wrote everything they remember and everything they saw Jesus do and everything they heard Jesus say. Now this means that Luke, along with many others, had been the, the recipients of the saving message about Jesus. Notice how verse 1 ends and verse 2 ends with this word, us. Something has been passed on to us. We, we have been the recipients of something that was passed on. The, the, the disciples passed on this message. Many others who were eyewitnesses passed on this message. And this message continues to be passed on. And men like Luke were the recipients, both orally and in writing, of all that Jesus had said and done. Now, when we think about the historical background regarding Jesus... According to verse 1, there's far more to the story of Jesus than just the testimony of eyewitnesses. So the first thing we need to know, the, 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 the background behind this gospel account being written, was many people saw these events with their own eyes, heard these, these 
teachings from Jesus with their own ears. But that's not the only thing that Luke says undergirds his story. There's another layer to what's being passed on. And we see that in verse 1 with this phrase, the things accomplished among us. People had written narratives about the things accomplished among us. Now, we can just read right past that and think that all Luke is talking about here is all the things Jesus has done. But actually, the word accomplished is better translated fulfilled. See, as they saw Jesus, they didn't just say, hey, this guy shows up, he claims to be God, he did these miracles, everything he said he and, and, and did, we, we, we have heard, we've seen, we, we think it's legit, we, we were there and, and we saw him die, we, we went to the empty tomb. It's not only that they were there to see those things, but everything Jesus did fulfilled something. And they were aware of the fulfillment. Now that leads a few questions that need to be answered. What was fulfilled? And who fulfilled it? What was fulfilled and who fulfilled it? Well, what's only implied here in the preface will be explicitly stated in the first two chapters of Luke's gospel. Here's what was fulfilled. All of the Old Testament was fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And who fulfilled it? God did. That's what we're going to discover in the first two chapters. All of Scripture and all the promises of Scripture have been fulfilled in the coming of Christ. You see, the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, it changed the world because Jesus was the fulfillment of all the promises of God that He had made to His people in the Old Testament. Start with Genesis. Find the promises God made after Adam and Eve fell into sin in Genesis chapter 3 and make your way through all the way to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. All those promises, when Jesus shows up, it's not just that He did miracles and He said amazing things. Everybody looked at Him and they said, every promise has been fulfilled in this man. That's the backstory. It's actually the bookends of this entire gospel account. Notice how Luke begins here by telling us that this is the narrative of all the things that have been fulfilled and then go back to the and then fast forward to the end of the gospel of Luke near the very end in chapter 24 verse 44 Jesus has died he's risen he's now appearing to his disciples and listen to what he says in verse 44. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's how we ought to read Luke's gospel. See, it's not just that th th those who were writing this gospel were eyewitnesses of these events and they could verify, no, they really happened. 
they saw all these events, and they didn't just say, that's amazing, he did a miracle. He just raised somebody from the dead. He just fed the multitude. You know, he speaks in ways that no one else has ever spoken. They saw it all, and they heard it all, and the light came on. They said, he's the fulfillment of all the promises of God. That's how we have to understand this story. David Garland, a commentator, said it so well when he wrote, History for Luke is not merely one thing after another, but has a purpose and is moving somewhere. The events he records are not mere occurrences, but are things that are filled up or fulfilled or have fulfilled something. They are monumentous and epic making and attain a goal. The reader then, needs to be aware of a larger context to understand the story. It is a continuation of God's long history of dealing with Israel and the world since the foundation of the world. These events fulfill Scripture and lead to salvation. Listen, if we are going to rightly understand the larger context of Luke, David Garland wisely reminds us, we must remember this, that this gospel is a continuation of God's long history of dealing with Israel and the world. Now let me summarize what we've discovered up to this point in the preface. We've only made it through the first half of this, sing, this single sentence. The gospel of Luke is the story of God acting in history to fulfill his redemptive plan by sending Jesus to accomplish our salvation. That's what the Gospel of Luke is about. It's the story of God acting in history to fulfill his redemptive plan by sending Jesus to accomplish salvation. One of the things you may notice as we make our way through this gospel is that throughout this gospel, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, they are central to the story, not just Jesus the Son. If someone says, what's the gospel of Luke about? It's about Jesus. Actually, it's about the triune God. I would argue that the first two chapters mention God the Father more than they mention Jesus. And all throughout this book, we're going to hear talk of what God did, what Jesus accomplished, and we're going to hear much about the Holy Spirit. See, that's what's happening in this book. God is revealing himself to his people in a in a way in which he's fulfilling all his promises. So we just we want to pay attention to that as we make our way through this book. Yet, Jesus is the primary emphasis of this book. Though the triune God is central, Jesus is, is, is the primary emphasis of this book. So here's a point of application before we move to the second half of this preface. It may sound like it doesn't need to even be said, but I, I want to appeal to us. As we make our way through the gospel of Luke, may we let Holy Scripture inform our view of Jesus. Now, why do I say that? 
Because many people throughout the world believe and know and have a fascination with Jesus. Many people have thoughts about him. Many people respect him, admire him. There, there are people even within churches who, who talk about Jesus and speak about Jesus and quote Jesus. I recently heard someone say there are many liberals who love to quote Jesus from the Gospels, but there's other parts of the Gospels that would leave them screaming in the night if they read. But there are conservatives that love to quote from the Gospels about Jesus, but they leave out other things that would make them feel a little uncomfortable. See, here's, here's what I'm appealing for us to all do. Let the Jesus of Holy Scripture be the Jesus we believe in. Not the Jesus of our upbringing. Not the Jesus of American culture. Not the Jesus of our liking. But the Jesus as he appears in the scriptures. So can I encourage us. No matter how long you have been a Christian. No matter how long you've been coming to church. And hearing all these stories about Jesus. From being a little kid. Can can we come to the gospel of Luke. With a fresh slate. Saying Lord teach me again. About the glories of Jesus. And that we look at him and that our view is informed by Scripture. Now, let's look at the second half of this preface. We saw the history behind the story. Now, let's look at the story that changed history, verses 3 through 4. Notice what Luke does. In the first half of this preface, he mentions what others had done. Now, he turns and says what he has done. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. In the second half of this preface, we discover that Luke was not writing this gospel account in an impersonal way. He's writing it with great attention and detail and accuracy. But he's not simply just writing as, as some academic, as just, as just as some historian. He is writing as a man who has encountered Jesus and has been changed by Jesus. And here's the thing we need to remember about this gospel and the man writing this gospel. This is not only the largest of the four gospels, it is the only gospel with a sequel. The book of Acts was dedicated to Theophilus also. Luke wrote volume one about Jesus while he was on earth. Acts is once Jesus was ascended, here's the rest of the story. And here's what we know from the book of Acts. This man named Luke not only was changed by Jesus, but he had the privilege of traveling around with the Apostle Paul and seeing with his own eyes 
Not only did he get to talk to people who lived in Jesus' day and told the stories of all that Jesus did, he got to see with his own eyes as they went from place to place to place the gospel being preached and people being saved, churches being built, pagan lands, places that you would have never imagined. People giving up their idolatry to follow Jesus. Luke saw it all. He saw how this Jesus changed the world. See, the writer of this gospel has a vested interest in this story. And not only does he have a vested interest, so does the one he dedicates this work to. This man named Theophilus. Now, we can't say too much definitively about this man, but let me tell you a few things and bring up a few questions that we can ask, but we don't know for certain. First of all, his name Theophilus means friend of God. Some wonder, was he really a single man and that was his name? Or does he represent every Christian? I tend to believe he truly was a single man whose name was Theophilus. But what we don't know about him, was he a fellow Christian? Or was he simply a seeker interested in knowing more about Jesus? Was he a Jew? Was he a Gentile? He's called most excellent. Is he an important official? Or is he just a common man? And maybe the most important question is, why is Luke writing this account of Christ for him? Aren't there other people? He could have written it too. Why, why does this man get, get a two-volume set? What did he do? Well, the most plausible explanation that most commentators suggest, and I, I think it is a good explanation, is that Theophilus was probably the financial supporter who made it possible for Luke to both travel, research, and write this gospel. And to write Acts. I mean, you got to think, this is before the publishing world. You want to go write a two-volume series on Jesus and do it with accuracy and find eyewitnesses spread all out? Well, that's going to take lots of time. Are you planning on quitting your job? Well, how are you going to meet the bills? Makes you wonder if a man like Theophilus, who had been taught about Christ and wanted to know if all this teaching about Christ was really true, if he said, Luke, you do the hard work and I will take care of all the expenses. That's most likely who this man was. Now, if this preface that we are looking at this morning, that that, that Luke wrote If we really look at it, we can tell that Luke is writing with painstaking accuracy. He's a historian using credible sources. He most likely interviewed eyewitnesses like Mary, the mother of Jesus. How do you think we know about the birth account? He probably sat down with Mary and with other family members of Jesus and spoke to them. So he, he, he was able to have access to people who knew Jesus personally. And not only was he able to interview them, he had access to written documents about Jesus, both to study and to reference. But listen, 
Luke is far more than just a historian. Luke is writing as a theologian. See, this isn't simply just a biography in which Luke is just interested in telling us about this great man and the things he did and the things he said. No, he has an aim. He's writing with, with a theological aim. You see the word orderly in verse 3? When he said that he wrote an orderly account, that, that word orderly means then more than just a chronological sequence of events. It's not just saying, Luke's not just saying, hey, here's what I did. I took all the information and I made sure it was in, in sequential order. That would be helpful. But that wouldn't necessarily tell us all we need to know. No, th this word orderly implies more than this. And as we will see in the weeks ahead, this gospel story is well written. It is that the entire book is structured around theological themes. Luke could have told us many things. Do you remember how John ended with his gospel? He said, if I wrote down all the things about Jesus, you could fill books that would fill the world. So then why did Luke pick some of these stories? More than half of his stories aren't found in other gospels. Why did he pick those? Why does he tell them the way he does? See, there, there is an artistry to the way Luke is writing. He, he has an aim. He is trying to get things across. There's important timelines he's, gonna, he's going to reference. There is geographical movement that advances the plot. But it still leaves the question, why did he write this account? We see that he wrote it with accuracy, and there is artistry. This is not just some dry, boring retelling of events. But why? Why did he write it? Well, he tells us in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. That word certainty that's used here in verse 4 only appears a few times in the New Testament. And it's a word that communicates safety and security. Actually, I think we can translate the word certainty with the word assurance. Assurance. Assurance is the main aim of this gospel. We don't have to guess. Thank you, Luke, for telling us before we read any further, before you tell us any story about Jesus, Luke tells us, I want you to know, I went through painstaking things to make sure everything I'm saying is true. And here's why I did it. So that you would know for certain. That you would have Assurance. See, everything that was written down in the Gospel of Luke was written down so that men like Theophilus could have assurance and that we could have assurance that everything about Jesus is true. Listen, the aim of this entire series is Luke's point. Why are we going through the Gospel of Luke? The aim of this entire series through the Gospel of Luke is meant to create certainty about the truths communicated in the Bible regarding the Gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So if you're wondering, what are we going to do as we make our way? What's the aim? Where's this going? Are we just rehearsing all the stories of Jesus and the Bible stories? Why, why, why Luke's gospel? Well, here's why. So that we could have certainty about the truths communicated in the Bible regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our hope and our prayer is that both today and for the foreseeable future as we make our way through the gospel of Luke, that people, no matter who they are, how old they are, how familiar they are with the stories of the Bible, would have assurance. So as I close this morning, I want to communicate several categories of people Not exhaustive, but as I was praying this week, I thought of several categories of people that are probably represented in here, not only today, but every Sunday. And I want to communicate the way we pray and hope that this gospel, of how the gospel of Luke will grant assurance to you. First of all, to those who are committed Christians, whether you've been saved for a little while or saved a long time, We pray that as you make your way through the gospel of Luke, you will have greater assurance of God's love for you as you behold Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We pray that if you are a Christian and you have put your faith in Jesus, you know that He died on the cross for your sins, that by the time we make it through the gospel of Luke, you will have greater assurance than you've ever had of his love for you. Your assurance isn't based on your circumstances. It's not based, in, it's not based on how you feel, but you have seen for yourself. You can actually go back to that old song we used to sing as kids. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Not because I'm not suffering. Not because I have all my questions answered. Not because I figured it out. I know that Jesus loves me. Because God has shown me in the gospel of Luke. But there's another category of people here this morning. And will be here throughout the coming weeks. I'll label these folks who I can find myself in at times to the struggling Christian. You believe in Jesus. You desire to follow him. But if you're honest, you continue to struggle with spiritual doubts. You are plagued by patterns of sin. And you constantly feel the pull of the world. You don't question whether Jesus is real. You don't question whether he died on the cross. Your real concern is, am I a good enough disciple to follow him? I love the world often more than I love him. And I wish I could just read these things and believe them to be true, but I have many questions and doubts. If that's you, here's our prayer. Our prayer is that as we make our way through the gospel of Luke, you would behold a Savior who came to save 
the struggler, the sinner, the outcast, and the spiritually oppressed. And that you would have complete assurance that he continues to welcome you as his disciple. We pray that there are some who may be thinking, I just keep messing up so much. I wonder if Jesus would want me to be his disciple. And as we make our way through Luke and we see Jesus engaging with people who would think, that's not the person I would think Jesus would want on his team. We would have greater assurance that we've never done so much that Christ would say, you're not welcome. That We would have assurance of his welcome for us. Maybe you're here this morning, and the best description for you is you're an apathetic Christian. You believe in the gospel. You've trusted Christ to be your Savior and Lord. But your zeal at its best is weak and often non-existent. You don't question, is Jesus the Savior? Is he my Savior? But your zeal, your passion for Jesus, well, <laughs> on your best day, it's pretty weak. Maybe non-existent. If that describes you, here's our prayer. That God would use the portrait of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke to stir your affections. And to cause you to love him more because you have greater assurance of his love for you. If you're an apathetic Christian this morning, we, we pray that God would use this portrait of Jesus to stir your affections. If you're lacking zeal, this is not about you saying, okay, i got, I got to get more passionate about Jesus. The only way you are going to love him more is having a greater assurance of his love for you. And that will stir up new and fresh and strong affections. And we're praying that God would do that among many. And lastly, maybe you're here this morning and this is the best description of who you are. You're the unsaved church attender. You're here. You've been coming. You've been listening. Don't know where you are. The whole God thing. Maybe you're more agnostic. Maybe you're committed to believing in a God. But you've never come to a place where you realize, I'm a sinner before a holy God. And I, I could never do enough to earn his forgiveness. So therefore, I'm either condemned or I must look to him to save me. And that you have realized not only that you're a sinner, but God sent Jesus to save you and to give you new life. If that's you, first of all, we're glad you're here. We really are. We're glad you're here. I hope you have felt welcomed and loved by the members of LifeGate Church. You know what my hope for you is? If this describes you. I hope that throughout this series, you will wrestle with questions of spiritual certainty. I really do. I hope you'll wrestle with questions of spiritual certainty. What do you believe? And how certain are you that it's true? 
said, well, I don't know if I really believe that's a holy book and that Jesus is everything that they're saying he is. Okay, what do you believe? And why do you have certainty that it's true? I pray that you will wrestle with questions of spiritual certainty. But most importantly, listen, I just want to be upfront with you. Here, here's what we are ultimately hoping for and praying for, that you will obtain certainty about the truth claims of Christianity and that you will personally encounter the living Savior, Jesus Christ, through the pages of Scripture, and you will be forgiven of your sins and your life will be changed forever. So I just want to be up front with you. That's why we're praying for you. I hope you know that. <laughs> we, we want you to encounter the Jesus we've encountered, who isn't just a Jesus who's a historical figure from a long time ago. He is a Jesus who died for sinners. He rose from the dead. He's reigning in heaven. And he forgives those who come to him and who ask for mercy. We're praying that if you have not discovered that Jesus, that through the gospel of Luke, your eyes would be open and you would see him and you would trust him and you would believe in him. Now, as I close, I want to share with you one final thought about gaining certainty about the truth claims of Jesus Christ and the gospel. L listen to these words from another preface about Jesus Christ. This one is not divinely inspired. But it is a preface written in a book about Jesus Christ entitled Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. And in the first edition of that book, John Piper wrote the following words about gaining certainty. He says, how do we come to know a person who lived on earth 2,000 years ago? One who claimed to rise from the dead with indestructible life and therefore lives today? Some people say you can't. The real Jesus is buried in history, they say, and there's no access to him. Others are not so skeptical. They believe that the biblical record of Jesus' life are reliable. But how can you be sure that the biblical portrait of Jesus is true? John Piper goes on to say, People take two paths in search of solid ground under the feet of faith. So if you're here this morning, you're saying, okay, so this, this gospel was written by a guy who did all of his research and talked to eyewitnesses. Well, how do we know it's true? How do, how do we know what is being said about Jesus is true? He said, there's, there's two paths you can take. One is the path of painstaking historical research to test the authenticity of the historical record. There's nothing wrong with that path. Nothing wrong with looking at the evidence, seeing, okay, how do we know this stuff was real? How do we know this really happened? Is there anybody outside of the four Gospels that speak of this Jesus guy? How, how do we know that other people didn't, you know, add their and embellish their truths about Jesus? I mean, we don't have the original documents. How do we know all of this is real? You can go through all of that. But he said there's a second path. There's another path. Stated most simply, the common path to sure knowledge of the real Jesus is this. Jesus, as he is revealed in the Bible, has a glory, an excellence, a spiritual beauty.
that can be seen as self-evidently true. And he explains what he means. It's like seeing the sun and knowing it's light, not dark. Or like tasting honey and knowing it's sweet and not sour. There is no long chain of reasoning from premise to conclusions. Nobody needs to turn on the light and say, no, you, you realize what happened. That's light, and here's why it's light. Because this happened, and your eyes took in these rays, and then your brain translated. No, no one needs to tell you that the light came on. No one needs to tell you when honey is on your tongue that it's sweet. You taste it, and you say, that's sweet. And he says this, there is a direct apprehension that this person is true, and his glory is the glory of God. So here's the test. If this Jesus is who the Bible says he is, then we must not come every Sunday just ready to learn. We must come ready to behold. We're not just getting facts about this man. The glory of God will be on display. And if he is who the Bible said he is, we will know it, not just through intellectual processes, but by saying, that's glorious. He's glorious. So let us come each week, church, ready to behold. Let's pray together. Father, as we sang a few minutes ago, that you would show us Christ, we ask again, Today, throughout this series, you would do what only you can do. You would give us spiritual sight to see what our eyes can read in Scripture, but our hearts are unable to take in. Not because Christ is not glorious, but because sin has blinded us. So Lord, would you help us to see the glory of the Savior in breathtaking ways. In, in, in all of his beauty, Lord, we would behold him. And I pray that both today and in the days ahead, you would grant every person present assurance. May you do that for the glory of your name. Amen.